0: Good morning, I'm Peter Gettler. Uh, A year ago, I was a retired investment banker. Now I'm uh, pretending I know how to lead a think tank. For the last seven months, I've been the president and CEO of of Cato. My predecessor, John Allison, um, made no secret of the fact that he didn't like living in Washington. I actually like living in Washington a lot. It's a beautiful city um, brought to us by the taxpayers of the United States. Um, Great restaurants. Beautiful buildings, modern architecture, classical architecture. Um, It has has everything. And I will admit, I think what John was put off by is the people do tend to be pretty nauseating. You know, when you're in a restaurant, you're surrounded by, uh, you go out in LA or Chicago or New York, you're surrounded by the most productive people in the world. You know, you go out in Washington, DC, you're surrounded by very unproductive people, rent seekers, bureaucrats, politicians. So I could see why it would be nauseating. But it is a beautiful city. And to know why it's so beautiful, I have to write this down, because I don't really know Latin very well. You have to go back to uh, the uh, district was organized in 1871, which tells you something about the government to begin with, because it was originally put together in 1801. It took 70 years to get organized. But there is a, uh, a Latin motto, coactione licet quidam stupenda secum." It means coercion. You can do some amazing things with it. Because that really is why Washington became a nice city. You, confiscate wealth from the productive geographies of the country, you spend them in one place, and you can create the veneer of prosperity. And I think that's one of our problems, because we have politicians and bureaucrats who never get outside the beltway, and they probably walk around the district all the time thinking, we're doing an unbelievable job, because this place looks great. Um, Well, it's Cato's job to shine a light on uh, on why that's not true and, uh, and the impact that Washington has really has on the productive geographies of the, com- of the country. My family and I were uh, benefactors of Cato for 15 years before I joined as an employee. And Cato, over that time, was uh, the mo- our most important philanthropic priority because we believe freedom, liberty are very important. And we really came to believe very deeply that there was no more effective organization working to expand liberty to try to roll back the state than, than Cato. And the reason for this is the institution's uh, intellectual integrity, uh, its adherence to principle, and this is something that uh, these are assets, the great assets of the, of the uh, institute that were built, cre- created, built, and safeguarded by, by Ed Crane over the decades that he led, led Cato. And in Washington, you know, most people either wear a red shirt or a blue shirt. And it's really impossible if you're wearing a shirt of one color or the other to convince someone who's wearing a different color shirt of your argument. And so, Cato, I like to say, goes shirtless, metaphorically speaking only. Um, you know, we have serious areas of agreement and disagreement with both parties and with conservatives and progressives alike. And so, we try to uh, resist very strongly being car- categorized as part of the right or part of the left. And I think this makes Cato uh, uniquely persuasive. And that ultimately is, uh, is what it's all about. A, uh, in a couple of years before I joined Cato, one of our good friends, Don Bedreau, the economist at uh, George Mason University, blogs at Cafe Hayek, wrote a great tribute to Cato and its importance. That Cato is about changing the climate of ideas, we, we say, and you've probably heard that before. But his analogy was uh, an iceberg. That uh, you know, an iceberg, there's a little tip of it above the water. But most of it lies below the water. And that tip that's above the water, is uh, um, that's what's politically feasible at any point in time. So if you align yourself with one part or the other, and everything goes your way in terms of elections, et cetera, you're only going to be able to change um, you know, the reality of our country in a very narrow range. And it's really Cato's role to try to move the, uh, the iceberg, turn it, expose other parts of it so that we can change. Uh, what's politically feasible so that it becomes politically feasible for more people to buy into the idea of a free and prosperous society that we all want to live in. Um, and uh, I think Cato has had a huge impact in that. Um, you know, When Cato was founded in 1977, uh, libertarianism was not considered you know, mainstream philosophy, and, and now it is. I believe that Cato has been the MVP of bringing mainstream respectability to libertarianism and giving a rebirth to the principles of the American Revolution, which ultimately is uh, one of the primary roles of Cato, as I see it, to be one of the foremost defenders of the principles of the uh, American Revolution. All of this wouldn't be possible, of course, without the the support of of our generous sponsors. And so many of them are uh, are here today. And so many of them I've met in the seven months that I've been, uh, been with the Institute having events like this, but also traveling around the country, having one-on-one meetings with, uh, with generous contributors to, uh, to Cato. And um, you make our work possible. And uh, we're very thankful, both as employees of Cato and also as people who care about uh, seeing our children and grandchildren ultimately living in the free and prosperous society that, uh, that we want them to. And so for that, we're, uh, we're very appreciative. As I've met so many of our sponsors, uh, they really are an extraordinary group of people. We have one of them here today, Rob Arnott, is gonna be our first speaker. And um, Rob is the author, I'm not gonna read his biography, you have it um, in, your, in your folders, but um, he's the author of over 100 articles on uh, investing, finance, financial analysis, been published in a variety of journals, Journal of Portfolio Management, the Financial Analyst Journal, um, For those of you who aren't familiar with the Journal of Portfolio Management, most of us would have a hard enough time reading an article in the Journal of Portfolio Management, let alone writing one. Um, But in addition to writing these articles, Rob spent nearly five years as the editor of the Financial Analyst Journal. He's on the uh, editorial board of the uh, Journal of Portfolio Management and on the Product Advisory Board of both the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and Chicago Board Options Exchange, the CBOE. He's the editor of, uh, of three books on investing and the co-author of, uh, of the book, uh, The Fundamental Index, A Better Way to Invest. His writing and scholarship have earned him seven Graham Dodd scrolls that are given out each year for the best articles in the Financial Analyst Journal. Um, he's also won other awards for his articles and writing on investing and in finance. But uh, beyond that, he's an entrepreneur in 2002. Um, he founded Research Affiliates, where he serves as Chairman and CEO, and uh, I think this, you know, the, his scholarship and his uh, practice as an investment manager, it, I think, really gives uh, life to what is written in the biography of Rob's efforts to bridge the gap between theory and practice and finance. Worldwide, there are about 175 billion in assets under management using strategies that have been developed by research associates. And so I think it's probably not an exaggeration to say that uh, hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of investors through his writing and, and uh, the work of research affiliates have, uh, have uh, benefited from, from Rob's work. He's gonna talk today about, uh, we've heard a lot of discussion about inequality. Uh, Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st century has gotten a lot of airtime. It seems to me that there are many fundamental defects to the discussions about inequality. Many of the uh, academic studies on which conclusions are based omit such, um, such small effects as taxes, when we live in the most regressive tax system in the world. Uh, demographics, the change in uh, the number and size of households that has occurred over a time of supposedly growing inequality and stagnation of middle incomes, and also the role of government in, in uh, promoting economic and income inequality is uh is largely ignored and that's something that at cato we try to spend a lot of time talking about whether it's the fiat money system or uh, onerous regulation that affects uh people's ability to rise from uh lower or middle income levels uh higher the uh centerpiece of uh i, I guess uh, a lot of capital in the 21st century is based on a conceptually sensible relationship between two two rates of return that make it sound as if our economy is a doomsday doomsday machine, giving rise to uh, ever higher levels of income for the wealthy and growing inequality. And uh, Rob's work, I didn't mention uh, the most prestigious journal which he's been published in, which is the Cato Journal. His talk is actually based on uh, a a paper he co-authored in the current edition of of the Cato Journal. So without uh, more delay, Rob.
1: It's a privilege to be here today, and uh, uh, fantastic that you are all able to take time out of your busy schedules to come, join Cato Institute both for a series of meetings and uh, also to... Celebrate freedom, to celebrate liberty, and to seek to invest in ways to promote continued freedom and liberty. What I'd like to do is to talk about, tangentially, about Piketty's work on uh, uh, capital in the 21st century, uh, modeled on the book Das Kapital, of course. Uh, the word capital appears in boldface in the 21st century in small print. He is a, he is a Marxist. Uh, quick question, how many folks here have read that book? Okay, we've got a half a dozen uh, masochists. How many, how many have actually, um, how many are familiar with its basic thesis? Okay, Piketty basically makes the case that there are structural elements to social inequality and financial inequality that lead to what he describes as dynastic wealth, the growth of wealthy dynasties no longer attached in any way to the ideas that created the fortune in the first place. And his basic thesis is built, uh, there's a a little bit of algebra here but only a little bit and we'll quickly move on away from algebra in a moment. One of his points is that alpha capital's contribution to the national uh, income is equal to investment returns times the ratio of capital to income. Okay, what does that mean? Let's suppose the total net worth of the nation is 600% of its GDP. Okay, that's about right. Let's suppose that the return on investments is 5%, then capital's contribution to national income, the role of capital in society, is 30% of GDP. Now his his definition of capital is much greater than just investment capital, which isn't anywhere near that. It includes real estate and public infrastructure. Okay, that's a truism. It's not controversial. He also says that the ratio of capital to income equals the savings rate over the real economic growth. So if economic growth is 2%, you need 12% savings rate for capital to remain at 600% of GDP. Also a truism. Nothing controversial there. A truism on average over time, not in every year. Finally, he points out that return on investment generally is greater than GDP growth. That the growth in the macroeconomy is exceeded by the return on investment capital. That's gotta be true in a healthy economy. Most of you are investors. How many of you are going to invest in something that you know has a return lower than economic growth? Show of hands, how many people are excited by that kind of a rate of return? (laughs) Right. Return in a healthy economy has to be greater than economic growth. He then says, therefore, the rich get rich faster than the economy grows. Worse, as growth rates slow due to demographic pressures, due to debt overhang, whatever, beta, the size of the wealth of society, hence the wealth owned by the wealthy, soars and inequality blossoms out of control. Hmm. That makes sense, except the return that matters in this context is the return that you keep. It's not the return that you earn, it's the return that you keep, net of taxes, charitable giving, net of... um, uh, the cost of earning that money? Net of your spending. Show of hands, how many people in this room take your investment portfolio and allow it to grow without ever spending a dime? Right. People spend. How many of you pay no taxes? Yeah, yeah, taxes erode it. So, the real issue is is our return on investments Net of all of that, greater than economic growth, and it it simply is not true. So what I'd like to touch on is an examination we did of the Forbes 400 data, 400 richest families in the United States, and examining it not from the perspective of is that list getting richer, but are the individuals on that list getting richer? It sounds like a tautology. If the list is getting richer, the individuals on the list must be getting richer. But once you make it onto the list, and I I know there's a couple of them here in the room, once you make it onto the list, do you keep rising on the list, or do you generally tend to make it onto the list and then taper off? In fact, the rich get poorer. Shocking, but true. I'll prove it. Where are the Astors, the Carnegies, and the Rockefellers? If we're looking at a world of dynastic wealth, then the Astors should still be on top instead of their descendants running a rabbit warren of small apartments in New York with a handful of them mere millionaires and most of them not even that anymore. The Carnegies, wealthiest man in the world. His descendants? Gone from any recognition. The Rockefellers, wealthiest man in the history of the world. There's one Rockefeller left on the Forbes 400, David Rockefeller, uh, John David Rockefeller's grandson. He turned 100 this year. I don't think he'll be on the list much longer. And his descendants won't make the cut. What about the old adage, rags to riches and back again in three generations? The evidence is, it basically happens. If you're uber-wealthy, multi-billionaire, maybe some will trickle down to your great-grandkids. But famously, there was a get-together of the Vanderbilts at Vanderbilt University back in 1972. A hundred years before that, Cornelius Vanderbilt was the wealthiest man in the history of mankind by conventional measures. Um, and here it was, just under a hundred years later, 120 descendants of Cornelius Vanderbilt there. Zero were millionaires. Zero. So I'll close with some observations about unintended consequences of policy. Let's first dive into some data. This shows the cutoff in red dash, a green dash line for making it onto the Forbes 400. Back in 1982, if you had $75 million, you were in the Forbes 400. Cool. 2014, 32 years later, you needed $1.5 billion to make the cut. That's interesting. Now, adjusted for inflation, you get the solid line. In today's dollars, you had to have close to $200 million to make it onto the list. Now it's $1.5 billion. The rich are getting richer. What about measuring it relative to per capita GDP? That's the black line up top over on the right scale. And what you can see there is, excuse me, on the left scale, uh, right scale, sorry. What you can see there is that to make it onto that list, you had to have 13,000 times per capita income back in 1982, and you have to have 100,000 times US per capita GDP to make it onto the list in 2014. Boy, the rich are really getting richer. This is offensive. Put a stop to that. But then let's look at the inaugural families. Who was on that list in 1982 and how'd they do? Well, it turns out their share of the Fortune 500 wealth dissipated over 32 years. And this isn't the individuals, this is the families. So we're counting descendants. The families that made it onto the list in 1982 collectively held held 39% of Forbes 400 wealth by 32 years later. Collectively comprised 28% of the list. So what does that mean? If 28% of the list is people who were on the list or whose parents were on the list back in 1982, that means you've got 72% that are newcomers. Newly created wealth. Newly created wealth isn't created just for the benefit of the individual who's newly wealthy. The only way to accumulate great wealth is to create products or businesses that create jobs, create new products and innovations that enrich the lives of people around you. And so the only way to create a great fortune is to create multiples of that for society as a whole. It also means that 61% of the wealth on the Forbes 400 was new wealth, newly created wealth. Was that unique to 1982? Well, here you can see the line for 1982, same line we saw earlier. You can see the line for 1983, 1984, on up to the line for 2013. Where for the ones who were on the list in 2013, those pockets of family wealth comprised only 95% of the 2014 list. 5% of the list, in terms of net worth, was newcomers, newly created fortunes. Very cool. If we like the idea of innovation, if we like the idea of businesses succeeding, creating jobs, creating products that people want to buy. We want newcomers on the list, and we've got them. If we average the slope of all of those lines, you get the red line. That's a very straight, sensible line showing the erosion of the share of wealth owned by people who make the top 400 list in any given year. We have seen a monster bull market over the last 30 years. Huge bull market in stocks, huge bull market in bonds. So let's suppose you started with 100 million dollars back in oops, back in 1982. And you put that money into a 60/40 portfolio, 60% S&P 500, 40% bond bond portfolio you would have had 11% per per annum return. To be sure, the best of the bull market was 82 to 2000, and we've had some hiccups since then that were pretty daunting. But still, 11% per annum, and you wind up with $100 million turning into $3 billion. Okay. The surviving debut families, the ones that stayed on the list from 1982 to 2014, how did their wealth grow? It didn't even grow as fast as 60-40 investments in mainstream stocks and bonds. It grew 8% per year. What if you throw in the people who didn't stay on the list? Just carry them on the list until they drop off and then make the presumption that the year they dropped off, they fell to $1 below the threshold that would put you on the list. Because dropping off means that you did have a bad year. Okay, if you include those, 6% a year. Wealth for inaugural families has grown. It's grown at 6% a year. But it's grown because of a monster bull market in mainstream stocks and bonds where you could have just parked your money in mainstream stocks and bonds, and if you didn't have any taxes or spending, it would have grown at 11% a year. That is a big shortfall. So when Piketty talks about 5% returns, Firstly, a show of hands, how many people in this room think that earning 5% on your liquid investments per annum, over and above inflation, is easy in today's world? Didn't think so. Piketty thinks so. Piketty thinks 5% is easy, and the uber-wealthy have access to great investment ideas and can do a lot better than that. What do they in fact achieve? Well, net of taxes and spending, they're achieving 5% a year less than the market. If the market isn't priced to give us 11% anymore, but is priced to give us, let's say, 2 or 3%, you're still going to have that 5% haircut. So the wealthy have grown poorer over time relative to passive investments in mainstream stocks and bonds, which means that the growth of concentration of wealth has been a phenomenon tied to a bull market, nothing more than that. The rise in top wealth generally is due to entrepreneurial activity. Now, to be sure, you have some who try through connections with government to become wealthy, Uh, Hillary and Bill seem to have done a nice job of trying to make it onto the 400 through a path other than entrepreneurial creativity, but never mind that. Most uh, most of the folks who make the 400 do so with entrepreneurial activity, building a business, inventions, innovations, new products. 80% of the newcomers to the Forbes 400 are self-made, first generation. 20% of the newcomers are trust fund babies. I use the term liberally, meaning that your dad or mom created it, or your granddad or grandmom created it. But, and for whatever reason, you're now in charge of that asset base. So 20% would be, in some fashion, inherited wealth, sometimes earned, sometimes perhaps not, but, but earned full and fairly by the folks who created the wealth. of newcomers are self-made. 75% of newcomers' wealth is self-made. Entrepreneurial fortunes are created with innovation, inventions, establishing big businesses, creating lots of jobs, and then retaining a share of the aggregate wealth that's being created. It's the entrepreneurial reward associated with creating Great wealth for society at large. So the rich are collectively getting richer, but the rotation among the wealthy is prodigious. New New entrepreneurs are richer than the entrepreneurs of a generation or two ago, and this is partly due to the global bull market. Suppose you have a company that generates 100 million in income. Scenario one, it's priced at a 10 P.E. ratio. That means the company's value is $1 billion. Scenario two, it's priced at 25 times earnings. It's worth $2.5 billion. Well, 1982, the market was priced cheaper than 10 times. It was about eight times. Um, 2014, uh, using what's called a Shiller P.E. ratio, price relative to 10-year averaged earnings, the market was at 25 times. So you had growth in wealth that was an illusion because of rising valuation multiples. The sustainable income that the portfolio produces doesn't go up between scenario one and two. Same company, same income, and an illusion of greater wealth because it takes more money to create the same income. The bull market creates an illusion of wealth concentration. The other observation is that past generations and current generations of hyper-wealthy recycle their old money back into the society. They spend, they fund charities. Charitable giving seems almost a competitive sport. They pay taxes. They divide their money, net of estate taxes among heirs. And so the wealth dissipates as a share of social wealth and as a share of the wealth held by the elite at a rate of three to six percent a year. It means the wealthy have diminishing economic clout that falls in half every 12 to 24 years. Sounds odd. How do you get onto the list in the first place? By creating something wonderful. Staying on the list, that's tough. So let's look back at past generations. Where are the leaders of the past? The DuPonts, extraordinary gunpowder monopoly, they had 25 seats on the Forbes 400 in 1982. 25 of the 400 were DuPonts. One in 1999 was a DuPont, zero in 2000 and ever since. How can you go from having 25 seats on the Forbes 400 to zero in just 18 years? My goodness, talk about dissipation of wealth back out into society. The Rockefellers were synonymous with unreachable wealth. Rich as a Rockefeller was an expression. They still had 13 seats in 1982. John David Rockefeller was the wealthiest man in the world in the 19 teens, and still in 1930, there's one Rockefeller remaining. Other great fortunes: Astors, Vanderbilts, Carnegie's, Wirehouses, you name it, gone. No trace of any descendants found in any of the Forbes 400 lists. So there's a fellow named Kevin Phillips who did the work of going back historically and identifying past lists of uber-wealthy. So the question is, are these Astor's and Carnegie's anecdotal examples or are they a general pattern? And so this is a list of the uber-wealthy in the 1800s according to... Uh, Wikipedia, each of these was the wealthiest man in the United States at one point. You had Astor's early in the 19th century, Carnegie's late, Gerard, Gould, S- Stuart, Van Rensselaer, a lot of these have universities named after them and are otherwise forgotten. Not one of them has a single descendant in the Forbes 400, not one. Rockefeller and Ford each have a descendant on the Forbes 400, Uh, They were in the ten wealthiest in the nation back in 1918. The highest ranking Rockefeller, the only Rockefeller, ranks 175. Highest ranking Ford ranks 262 on the list. Out of the 1957 list, the second column from the right, oh, does anyone know how to switch that off? Yeah. 1957 list, you've got four that are still on the list, and the highest ranking of all of them is now only 42nd on the list after having been fifth on the list in 1957. 1968, only four remain. The rotation is tremendous. You can also track the the erosion of wealth measured as a multiple of per capita income in the United States. In 1918, per capita GDP was $700. So, a family of four, $3,000 would have been an affluent family. Back then, John David Rockefeller was number one in the world with 1.7 million times per capita GDP as his personal wealth. The average for the top 10 was much lower, it was only 210,000 times per capita GDP. Now we're doing apples and oranges here in the sense that we're comparing wealth with income. And of course, as I just demonstrated, it takes more wealth to generate the same level of income after a bull market. Well, what happened to the Rockefeller family? You can track it. Some, all of the people listed who are descendants of the Rockefellers, and you find 3% per annum erosion in their wealth. And this was a family that was legendary for their thrift, for their caution in spending money. As for the average for the top 10, they did okay in the roaring 20s, but they fell off a cliff, falling 7% per annum in the years after. The top 10 in uh, 1930, straight line down, 7% per annum. The top 10 in 1957, even a steeper decline. Top 10 in 1968, even a steeper decline. Top 10 in 1982, upward slope since then over the last 32 years. What's with that? That's the bull market. Net of rising valuation levels, they're tumbling way down. And contrary to popular perception, the inaugural list, Hunt may have been number five on the list, but if you add up all of the Hunts that were on the list, it was the wealthiest family. If you add up all of the Hunts that are on the list, there's still a wealthy family amply wealthy on the list. The 2014 top 10, higher than any other top 10 list. But again, that's because of valuation level's being high. Markets are high, meaning that the income delivered by any given investment in the market uh, is much lower than it was in the past. So it takes more wealth to generate the same income. Surprisingly, the number one family on the list today is the Waltons of Walmart fame. Gates is the wealthiest individual. The Waltons collectively are richer still. Um, So then the next question is, do the families of legendary wealth fare better? We found wealth dissipation ranging from 48% a year. That's the slope of these lines. Uh, We find that dynastic wealth does not exist. It's a myth. So Piketty was completely wrong. Let me close with observations relating to the famous saying, rags to riches and back again in three generations. Founders of great wealth generally have a one in a million talent. Those of you in the room who are very wealthy, um, I hate to say it, your progeny will rarely share you're one in a million talents. (laughs) They're generally masters at consuming fortunes, not building fortunes. Um, So do the second and third generation dissipate inherited wealth faster than those that created the wealth in the first place? Absolutely yes. This shows people in 1982 who were first generation and shows what happened while they were still alive in terms of their wealth and it stays pretty much intact in terms of their share of the Forbes 400 wealth. It shrinks a little bit, it dissipates a little bit. The talents that get you to a top spot on the list, generally it requires yet another one in a million leap of talent to grow that to the next level. It's hard. And so the one in a million who get onto the list usually, with their skill, with their focus, stay on the list until they get rather old, and then it starts to dissipate. Their kids who are on the list, boy, do they dissipate it fast. Their grandkids who make it onto the 400, oh my goodness the wealth is dissipated in half in 24 years by second generation, and in half in 11 years for the third generation. Half of the wealth disappearing in just 11 years. By the third generation, they're in free fall, so the average share of Forbes' uh, top 30, we didn't have the time to go through one by one, all 400, and figure out are they first, second, or third generation, but we did it with the top 30, year by year, all the way back to 1982, Wikipedia is a wonderful tool. Um, And what we found was the proportion of the wealth of the Forbes 400 back in 1982, over half of it um, was owned by first generation, Uh, a large chunk was owned by second generation, and a respectable 10% or so was owned by third generation. This has now evolved to a point where 70% of the wealth is first generation, 30% is second generation, zero is third generation. Now it's not that there aren't any rich third generation people, it's just that not a single one makes it to the top 30 on the list, the uber wealthy. So the point of this is, yeah, it dissipates. Where does it dissipate? Back out to society. Why do we need to hasten that process? The wealthy are masters at giving their money away. They're masters at spending their money. They're masters at reinvesting some of it in some pretty cool new ideas. Without their reinvestment, venture capital largely wouldn't exist. So most immense pools of wealth are first generation. It's nearly impossible to create first generation wealth without advancing society's wealth by a multiple of the slice that an entrepreneur takes out. They're masters at dissipating their own wealth, and the pace of wealth erosion accelerates with every generation. We have to watch out for unintended consequences. Piketty suggests very high tax rates on income above a certain threshold, which coincidentally happens to be a threshold slightly higher than his income. Hmm. Okay. Confiscation above his income level, and wealth taxes. You don't need wealth taxes. The wealth gets dissipated reasonably fast already. Do we want to reduce the incentives for entrepreneurs and for innovation? Of course not. Redistribution can cause the wealthy to rethink their spending and giving. Show of hands, and don't be shy. How many, of, how many folks in this room could write a million dollar check to Cato and not have it bounce? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, How many of you would think twice about writing that check if you knew that your wealth was going to be confiscated aggressively and quickly? I think the question answers itself. Redistribution can actually slow the process at which the wealthy dissipate their wealth back out into society because of a fear that they can't re-earn it. Show of hands, does anyone know what this is a picture of? Yes, North Korea. You're right. This is South Korea. This is China. This is North Korea. Dr. Piketty, do we want a society that loathes and punishes success? Thank you for your time. (laughs) Questions? Yes.
2: On your analysis of the wealth distribution for the dynastic families, did you guys put calculation into those foundations, charitable foundations, whether they are private foundations or foundations or private operating foundations, and calculate in what percentage of that wealth that went into that kind of entity still exists today, what percentage of the Mm. total of the family as an aggregate of all of the individuals that have charitable contributions, and what a great
1: Uh, contributor to
2: society that is.
1: Yeah. The short answer to your question is no, that didn't occur to us. That's a neat question. Longer answer would be that foundations by their very nature exist to redistribute the wealth back out to society. That's their purpose. So I would view that as part of the dissipation. I would view that as part of charitable giving. Um, When I donate to a cause that matters to me, I like to donate to... The endowment, not to the yearly operating budget, because then, it's, then they want it every year. <laughs> but um, if you add up all of the foundations in the United States, all of them, I'm highly confident the total value of all foundations in the United States is not a trillion dollars. The aggregate wealth of the Forbes 400 is multiple trillions. So that tells me that that element of dissipation um, is only part of the puzzle and is not as big as a lot of folks might think. In individual cases, it can look huge. But in aggregate, compared to the aggregate size of the economy, it's not. Next question. Yes. Thank you. Your arguments, of course, are quite compelling, perhaps somewhat intuitive to people in the room, although I, we, which, who may also ask the question, so what if the rich are getting richer, <laughs> if they exactly. got it honestly and absence of coercion and government assistance. But my question is, um, has this been out long enough and has there been pushback by those who support Piketty and support policies based on his arguments and um, what have, what have those counterarguments arguments been? Um, short answer is some of the arguments we make have been made before, but not in as systematic or thorough or documented a fashion. Uh, Piketty, in his book, anticipated this criticism and was dismissive of the Forbes 400, saying that you could use the Forbes 400 to suggest that that there's rotation, but the Forbes 400 is an incomplete list because the wealthy hide their money. Okay, fair enough. But once you're discovered, once you're on the list, can the people at Forbes track you? Are they going to look for you the next year? Of course they will. Can they track your wealth Uh, with uh, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of inexactitude? Of course they can. And so the dissipation, once you're on the list, is measurable. Um your initial point as I think a very legitimate one. What the heck is wrong with wealth being accumulated by those who create wonderful things for society? Um, do we really want to bring that to a stop? Of course not. Does Piketty? Yeah, but he's an outlier. So Short answer to your question is it's, it came out in this current issue. No, we haven't had a lot of pushback, but we've seen similar arguments raised by others in a less thorough way, and the retort generally is, well, there's something wrong with the data. Okay, give me a break. Point out a wealthy Aster. Point out a wealthy Carnegie. It gets dissipated. It gets recycled back out into society. Those, those of us who are affluent, do that just as a natural course of things. Nothing wrong with it.
3: Yes. Let's take a far fetched concept. Let's say they take, <clears throat> our government takes Social Security and creates individual accounts yep. for everybody, and they put the same 12.42% in that account. Mm-hmm. And that account is each individual person, and I figured out over a period of time, 40 years, you know, life expect uh, retirement, that the median would have 600,000 in that account if you had 4% return on your money. Yep. If you had 6%, it would be a million. 8%, you'd have, I think it's 3 million. If we did that, and all these people in Social Security didn't have nothing in their account like today, how would that affect this dynastic wealth? I'm not
1: sure it would. Um, I think that if we... I, I like the idea of privatizing retirement programs. It's not going to happen because folks in power want... To control the money. They want that money under their control. And so, and they want the to be the ones who have the power to change the rules. I'm sure there's going to be means testing in the very near future. Okay. Um, you can't have that if you have separate accounts. So uh, but your point is well taken. If if people could invest their own money instead of having it taken by the government, and they hope given back to them in retirement. They hope given back to them in larger numbers than was taken out of their pay. Um, uh, what it would do to the rosters of the uber wealthy, I don't think it would make much difference at all. There was another question over here. Yeah, microphone's about about to get to you.
3: How would I possibly use your information, considering the fact that I have access to considerable funds that could affect millions of people actually today? And what would I do with what I've learned now?
1: Well, one of the unfortunate things about the current mindset is that it puts the affluent in a frame of mind of wanting to hang on to what they have and avoid having it taken away rather than focusing on product innovation, pioneering entrepreneurialism, to build new wealth because the fear is, build you build it, it's taken away. And yes, you did build that, by the way. Um, so short answer is, I don't know. Um, I invest some for new initiatives, new products, new businesses, and I, I invest some with an eye towards, uh, I don't want this taken away. So defensively, in a fashion that doesn't necessarily boost economic growth in the years ahead. Uh, it's, it's an unintended consequence of benighted policies. One last question? Sorry. Uh, there is a remarkable statement you made here that, uh, to be careful about accelerating the already rapid process of voluntary wealth redistribution. Wouldn't that be a, a really a sly way of saying that an involuntary rate, re, um, redistribution of wealth will make everybody even more poor? That's exactly right. If you, if you force redistribution, then the voluntary portion of redistribution probably diminishes. Uh, I don't understand why the charitable community generally leans to the left because they depend on the wealthy for donations and they should want the wealthy to keep more money so that they can get more donations from them. But never mind that. Um, uh, The point of that observation is very simply that if you try to accelerate the redistribution, the affluent are likely to be much more cautious about how fast they give away money, how fast they spend money. And so the recycling of their wealth back into society might actually slow down instead of speeding up. The only difference is it goes under the control of government, which may be the point of those who want that redistribution. Thank you for your time.
0: Uh, Thanks so much. That was great. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was a great presentation. Uh, next, we're going to hear from Ian Vasquez, a longtime member of the Cato Policy Staff and the director of Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. The mission of the center is to basically make the case that liberalism is the best means of dealing with the pressing uh, needs of developing countries and uh, making the case that uh, liberty. Expanded personal choice, economic freedom is the best way to deal with prosperity and to increase, to deal with poverty and increase prosperity in the, in the developing world. Uh, Ian and his team have been uh, instrumental in making the, the case and I think uh, establishing the now conventional wisdom of the very strong correlation between freedom and, uh, and prosperity. Ian uh, writes a weekly column in El Comercio, the uh, leading newspaper in Peru, his native Peru. And uh, I often wander into his office. It seems invariably at the time he's got a deadline, pressing deadline for the, uh, for, the, uh, for the column. But over the last few years, I've traveled to dozens of countries meeting um, people I call freedom champions. And uh, Ian has always been able to introduce me to people, freedom champions, people working to expand liberty in their countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America. Um, we call them freedom freedom champions and heroes. Their governments usually call them troublemakers. And Ian has uh, introduced me to a few of these people, including in his native Peru, where he introduced me to a libertarian activist who was gonna bring me to a poor, part of Lima, the poorest part of Lima, and introduced me to some people who were working to educate people about liberty um, and and freedom. And uh, instead, uh, they asked if I wanted to join a uh, a protest march against uh, military conscription, so I I said that I would. And uh, I emailed one of my best friends, very excited that I was participating in this event, and uh, he emailed me back, let me know if you need me to wire you bail money. And I said, this is, you know, that, that's ridiculous. It's just going to be a demonstration. And uh, on the, la- the last day of my trip, I was meeting with a, a libertarian who works uh, educating people in uh, one of the most uh, far-left areas of Peru. And I told him the story about participating in this, uh, this demonstration. And he told me that, uh, oh, well, you're very lucky because in Peru it's illegal for foreigners to participate in political demonstrations. So I guess the, uh, the threat of bail money was not too, uh, not too far away. But uh, Ian and I have known each other for, for a, a long time. He has uh, many troublemakers uh, on his staff, uh, including people who uh, are not well liked by, uh, by Putin, by, uh, by Xi, uh, Rafael Correa in, uh, in Ecuador, et cetera. So uh, Ian.
2: Thanks very much, Peter. Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure for me to be here uh, with all of you to, to share some, some thoughts about freedom and progress around the world. It's true that I work with uh, troublemakers everywhere, and I could talk about uh, that for a while. But it's always good to have a big picture about what's going on. And I've been traveling between the developing world and the developed world all my life, and anybody who has done so, certainly anybody who has done so since the 1990s can easily see that in most parts of the world, people's standards of living have increased during this period of time. And that's why I'm always amazed when people, typically in rich countries, uh, have a uh, view of, of the world that is at odds, so many people that is at odds with reality, and that leads them to a pessimistic outlook about uh, the state of the world. There was a recent poll of Americans, for example, that found that the majority of Americans believed that in the last 20 years, world poverty had doubled. The reality is quite different. Just last month, the World Bank announced that for the first time in history, the poverty rate in the world will fall this year below 10%. That's about a third of what it was 20 years ago, there's tremendous progress uh, going on. And the fact of the matter is that we're li- living longer, healthier, wealthier, safer lives than at any time in history. And at the Cato Institute, we believe that that has <coughs> that, that uh, a big part of that story is human freedom and the increase in human freedom in recent decades. That is that the increase in human freedom is itself a measure of progress and that human freedom itself plays a central role in progress and we think that that's something that uh, pe- that relationship is something that people should better understand recently uh, we published a, an index of human freedom human freedom index with the Fraser Institute in Canada and the Liberales Institute in Germany which measures economic, personal, and civil freedoms around the world. It's the first time anything of this sort, certainly anything as comprehensive of this, has ever been done. Now, everybody from the Pope to Hugo Chavez to George Bush has their own definition of freedom, and they all claim to be promoting freedom. ISIS is claiming to to promote freedom. We define freedom as the absence of coercive constraint. The idea that you're free to lead your life however you choose as long as you don't violate the equal rights of others. And in this discussion about freedom and progress around the world, I like to uh, cite this historical fact which is that progress is a very recent phenomenon. For most of human history, economic growth was zero or virtually stagnant. People didn't even think about the idea of progress until recently, certainly not in the way that we think about it today. And then, all of a sudden in the 19th century, the countries that today we call rich were able to uh, escape from mass poverty. And you see this explosion of wealth that began in Europe, spread to the United States, Canada, and some offshoots, and over time to other parts of the world. This process accelerated recently with globalization so that in 1820, almost the entire population of the world lived in utter poverty, a dollar a day or less, maybe about 80 85% of the world. Today, as I say, that's under 10%. This is tremendous uh, progress. That, uh, that explosion of wealth did not occur by accident. It happened in Europe in the context of... Uh, a respect for private property, a respect for contracts, um, competition in economic policy, and even uh, competition of policies. This is the so-called European miracle that then spread to the rest of the world. And it's something that today we would call economic freedom. And in fact, at the Cato Institute, we've worked uh, with the Fraser Institute on a project that they've led on economic freedom for a long time. And economic freedom makes up half of our our index on human freedom. And by economic freedom, what we mean is that uh, there exists economic freedom when there is competition, when there's voluntary exchange, when there's freedom to choose, and when there's protection of people and their property. And we measure 42 different variables in countries around the world in those categories, ranging from the size of government uh, to uh, to regulation. This is a map of economic freedom in 1975. In this map, red represents very low levels of economic freedom, and bluish green represents high levels of economic freedom. You can see that Argentina, whoops, it's jumping by itself. You can see, well, now we're going forward by automatically somehow. Anyway, this is what has happened in the, in the world during that time period. You can see this huge increase in, whoops, I don't know what, uh, what is going on here, but let's go back. All right, let's just stay there. We, you can see this huge increase in, in f- economic freedom around the world. You see countries like Chile and Blue, Estonia, these are success stories. They've become some of the freest countries economically in the world, and uh, clearly uh, become uh, success stories. Now, I want to talk about why economic freedom is important, but before I do so, I wanted you to keep in mind where the United States ranks on on this list. It ranks 16th. Now for decades, the United States was always at the top of the the leagues, ranking in second or third place. But beginning around the year 2000, it started a long-term decline so that it is at uh, the 16th place today. Keep that in mind as we talk about the importance of economic freedom. The first thing that we found is that there's a very strong relationship between economic freedom and prosperity. Well this might not surprise most of you in this room and frankly it didn't surprise us. Uh, People from the time of Adam Smith and uh, economists from the time of Adam Smith and so on have been talking about this relationship. This is the first time though that this kind of exercise, empirical exercise, had been done so systematically and that's very helpful. What's impressive, though, is that apparently small changes in economic freedom make big differences in outcomes. You can see that the most free countries, divided by quartiles, have income levels that are about twice as much as the next set of free countries. And this is something that countries around the world, like China and India, have been finding out. Those two countries, for example, have increased their level of economic freedom by two points on a 10-point scale and have managed to have high growth between 8 and 10% for decades. China alone has been able to pull 600 million people out of poverty as a result. This is unprecedented in world history, both in its scope and in the speed at which it was done. The fact that the two most populous countries in the world have had such high growth because of an increase in economic freedom means that global inequality which had been increasing for centuries in this era of globalization has begun to decrease the world's poor are catching up in terms of income to uh, the world's rich well we didn't just look at the relationship between economic freedom and, and and prosperity economic freedom is unambiguously good for the poor. Here you can see that poor people in freer countries do much, much better than poor people anywhere else. And we looked at all sorts of other indicators. Here's another way of looking at it. The more economic freedom, the less poverty. You can look at the whole range of indicators of human well-being and see this relationship. More economic freedom, more education, and more literacy. More economic freedom and less corruption. In this graph, the higher number means less corruption, and that makes sense. If the state intervenes more, if there's more regulations, that opens the door for corruption and so on. We also found that there's a strong relationship between economic freedom and other freedoms, political and civil freedoms. That too uh, makes sense because as someone once said, the control of the economy, the control of economics is the control of life itself. If a government can control economic decisions, it can control other freedoms, it can control where you work your, your own personal decisions and so on and that's why authoritarian governments choose uh, so often to repress their economies. We've seen this pattern of authoritarian governments all around the world increasing uh, economic freedom when they have to, as happened in Chile, as is happening in, in China, and as they have done so in country after country, other freedoms have, have followed. You see that, that Chile, for example, uh, <coughs> has transitioned from a, an authoritarian state to a country where there's democracy and full civil freedoms. It's one of the freest uh, countries in the world. I put Venezuela up there because oftentimes people consider democracies to be guarant- guarantors of freedom, and that's not necessarily true. Venezuela is a good point. It was a country that was considered to have the longest democracy in Latin America. And indeed, it did have democracy, but it started introducing more and more socialist policies and repressing economics, Now, uh, economic freedom. Now when Hugo Chavez came in, he was just a continuation of that policy, but at a more accelerated rate. And today, of course, there is, uh, uh, it, it is a full-fledged authoritarian uh, state. Now, a few years ago, we published a book where the, the scholar who, who uh, looked at this data gathered uh, data from around the world, not on, not on income, but on all sorts of indicators of human well-being, from life expectancy to access to clean drinking water to you name it, to see what has been going on around the world in terms of those uh, indicators. And what he found was this huge uh, increase in human well-being in countries around the world and especially in developing countries. I'll just give you an example. This is the infant mortality rate in China over the past several decades. It just plummets. But I could show you examples of this, of countries around the world with almost any indicator of human well-being. Here's the same indicator for India. Here we go with uh, Africa. Here's Latin America. Countries around the world are achieving huge gains in standard of living in within one generation or less what it took rich countries a hundred or more years to achieve. This is enormous uh, progress. And so what's going on is that if you just look at indicators of human well-being between poor countries and rich co- countries, the poor are catching up to rich countries at a rate that is even faster than what is going on with per capita incomes. What does that mean? It means a couple of things. One is that as countries become richer, oftentimes as a result of increases in economic freedom, they're able to afford uh, better standards of living. But what's also going on is that at any given level of income, countries today are able to achieve much higher standards of living than was ever the case, and that was the case even 30 years ago. This is even true of countries that have done little to reform their economies, to increase their levels of economic freedom. Even there, you see increases in standards of living. And I think that that confirms an insight of uh, the Nobel economist Friedrich Hayek, who more than 50 years ago observed that the benefits of freedom are not confined to the free. What's going on is that the free world is literally lifting up all of humanity with their inventions, the medicines, the technology, the capital, the know-how, the innovations, all of which even poor countries that do little to reform benefit from. And I think that that uh, is something that we're seeing. So speaking about uh, free and wealthy countries, what about the United States? As I say, the United States was ranked second or third in our economic freedom uh, Uh, rankings for decades. And then, starting about the year 2000, there was this long-term decline that you can see uh, in this graph. It's at 16th place. Canada has now overtaken uh, the United States as a more free uh, country. And the problem in, in the United States is that in every area that we measure, the size of government, regulation, and so on, the United States has taken a big decline. But the one that is most worrying is what I would call the rule of law indicator as it relates to uh, economic freedom. And that's this. You can see that the legal system and property rights indicator in the United States has taken a dive. And we think that this is a result of the ramifications of the drug war, the war on terror, uh, a weakening of the private uh, property uh, system in the United States. Uh, manifestations of of uh, crony capitalism where public funds are used to to benefit certain industries or or businesses in complete violation of, of the law things that um, we've seen accelerate in in the past twelve or fifteen years and so this is a uh, something that is uh, worrisome because the rule of law really is one of those indicators that is, that is necessary to uphold other uh, freedoms in a country. The authors of our economic freedom uh, work, Jim Gwartney and his, his colleagues, based, based, basing their uh, calculations on, on scholarly studies suggest that if the United States does not correct this trend and, and increase its level of economic freedom back to what it was some years ago, then we can expect that the long-term growth rate of the United States be about half of what it has been. It's been about 3% in the previous several decades, so we can expect uh, a 50% cut in that. And that's a, huge, uh, that's a huge fall. And it has implications, of course, not just for America, but for the, for the world. So I said uh, uh, that we are, of course, interested in the full measure of freedom. And our Human Freedom Index takes a look at rule of law as it pertains to civil and procedural justice and criminal justice, safety and security, freedom of movement, freedom of religion, freedom of association and assembly and so on, freedom of expression and relationships. And When you put the personal freedom measures together with the economic freedom measures, we get a ranking that looks like this. Here, the United States is in 20th place. The United States, most I think Americans would like to think of as the bastion of liberty or certainly as one of the freest countries in the world. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, the US has been slipping in that regard and we like to use this index, among other things, to draw attention to Americans and to to the political system and so on, that this is a problem. Why is it a problem? Because here again, we see a strong relationship between human freedom and all sorts of outcomes. Here we see an even more uh, dramatic effect of the full measure of human freedom exerting itself on income per per capita. And so it is with all sorts of other uh, human development indicators, like uh, life expectancy uh, at birth. You can say, here is a difference of almost 20 years between the least free countries and the most free countries in terms of how long people live. You can say that freedom literally is a matter of life and death. More free countries have greater access to, to clean water, the greater access to sanitation facilities. I could go on and on, but there's a strong effect of freedom on standard of living. Now, i like to show this graph which shows freedom by regions. It's maybe a little bit hard to read, but there's about 17 regions there. And and the point that I want to make here is is simply that the countries that are most free tend to have higher ratings of personal freedom than economic freedom, and the countries that are least free tend to have higher ratings of economic freedom than personal freedom. That, to me, suggests uh, a pattern of development that goes something like this that as poor countries increase their level of economic freedom and become more developed, they also are then able to support other personal freedoms. You need to have a certain level of economic freedom to exercise and support other personal freedoms. And I think that that's something that this graph uh, is telling us. Another way of looking at it is this. If you want to live in a country with high personal freedom, you need to have high levels of economic freedom. And that's one of the findings from our report that I think is especially important, not just to us, we believe that there's, the freedom is, it should be considered in its full measure, but to a lot of people who are, consider themselves advocates of, of freedom, but oftentimes only advocates of a certain kind of freedom. Maybe they're advocates of freedom of the press. and they are critical or don't appreciate the importance of economic freedom. Well, I think that our work uh, shows that actually economic freedom is a central uh, uh, human freedom and it's central to uh, sustaining and nourishing other freedoms. I wanna end with this uh, last graph here, which is really a graph about human freedom and innovation, where what we can see is The most free countries are the ones where people are inventing things that benefit all of humanity. And my point is that those most free countries are also advanced economies, and advanced economies need a free flow of ideas. They need trial and error. They need an environment of of criticism. Uh, They need what Chinese economist Wei Ying Zhang has called a free market of ideas. In other words, they need a full measure of freedom. I think that this is something that China today is finding out. China increased its levels of economic freedom significantly in the last several decades, but it's still an unfree country. It's a repressive authoritarian uh, state. It's much, much freer than it used to be, but it's still an unfree country. And as its economy has advanced, it needs to have um, industries and companies that are free to innovate. And it's running up against that wall as long as it, it uh, represses the freedom of people to associate, to exchange ideas, and so on. And I'm, as I say, I think this is something that countries around the world, as they develop, are starting to figure out. And I think China will figure that out uh, sooner or la- later. I'm betting that the China will also fo- follow the pattern of so many developing countries and move to greater freedom and development. And as countries figure out the importance of the full measure of freedom, I think that that would be a great benefit to us all. Thank you. Any questions? There's a question in front.
0: Uh, I I have a. a the charts went by pretty fast.
1: Yes. So uh,
2: sorry about that. I,
0: I have an image of Europe and particularly Northern Europe as as uh, an area where there's a lot of government and a lot of redistrib- redistribution of wealth. But that I don't think that was reflected in your charts of freedom. Can you comment on that?
2: Yes. Uh, We tend to think of of Europe as a less free place than the United States. In some cases, it is. In some cases, it it isn't. Uh, But Northern Europe, Scandinavian countries, the UK, and so on, um, if you just look at their economies, their economies are actually freer than those of the United States in almost every area, except, um, in most cases, the level of spending and taxation, which is not insignificant but the way that we measure economic freedom is that we don't just look at how much a government spends we look at all sorts of things monetary policy uh, regulations openness to trade and in that regard just looking at scandinavian countries for example the scandinavian countries are more free than the united states except in that uh, one area so that when when bernie sanders the other day said that his model is is denmark we said Okay, good, that's a pretty free country, and in terms of business regulations, it's much better than the United States. Some European countries don't have a minimum wage. So, so it's important, this is one of the benefits of being able to measure freedom. You can point these things out. Now, um, I do think that for these countries, high levels of taxation are a big problem. And Darren S. from MIT the other day in the New York Times made a very good observation, which is that, um, in Denmark, because they have high rates of taxation and so on, they discourage the type of entrepreneurial uh, innovation that you see in the United States, which is more favorable to to that kind of activity. And as a result, Denmark has a high standard of of living because they can benefit from the (laughs) innovations uh, and the technology that is invented here in the United States. And so they have high levels of taxation to support their welfare state but they're greatly benefiting from the United States. If the United States were to follow that pattern, they would suffer as would the rest of the world. So as I say, the free countries in the world are benefiting all of, of humanity, not just the developing countries, but the so-called developed ones as well. <clears throat> yes, right there. Just wait for one second for the mic. Thank you. Thanks.
1: The one chart you had on human freedom uh, listed China at like 132 or 120. It was very low on the yeah. on the chart. Yet the growth rate for China at the opening you suggested was quite rapid. What, what what's the yeah. mix there?
2: That's a good question. So if <clears throat> if China's freedom, and by the way, its economic freedom is also not that high. It still is a relatively unfree country. So if that's the case, how is it possible that it's uh, grown so much for so long. And the answer to that question is that when you, have, when you start out from being one of the most repressed economies on the planet and also being one of the poorest places on, on the planet and over a huge area, increase the level of economic freedom in a couple of categories, which is what they've done, freedom to trade, agricultural freedom, and competition policy in, internally, you can have high growth for a long time, and that's what's going on there. It matters what base you start out with. Now, what, the, what China is finding out is that they have to continue to increase their levels of economic freedom if they want to have continued growth, and right now they're at a juncture. They're not doing it. I think that what's going on in China is the classic uh, dilemma of authoritarians. The Communist Party knows that to the extent that they've liberalized their economy, they've been able to grow, but they've also been losing political control and they don't want to. So if they crack down politically, um, they might exert control, but it, could, but it will reduce economic growth, which is what's going on now, and create social instability, which is not what they want. If they liberalize, they will get uh, more prosperity and growth, but they'll lose political control, which is not what they, they want. So there's an internal fierce debate going on in Ch- in China with the military with the communist party and so on about what the right thing is to do and there actually are very sophisticated Chinese and import- important important parts of society who understand this and are advocating liberalization but of course it's a very complex political system inside of what i think is essentially un- ungovernable country and That's the good. That's to me a good thing because it means that the, in my view, that the genie's out of the bottle. They're not going to be able to 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 put this back in. And in the long term, I think China will follow the pattern of so many other countries that that liberalized.
0: I think we have time for one more. We have time as long as it's a brief question and a brief answer.
2: Well, I he had his hand up. I'm sorry, from the beginning. So,
3: Ian, what's the response to the index uh, that you just published?
2: Oh, it's been received pretty, uh, pretty nicely, I, I think. Um, we have, I've gotten nice comments from uh, think tanks and people around the world, some politicians, some opinion leaders, and so on. Uh, CNN had a very nice piece when it came out talking about the index, talking about how the United States has fallen on this. And what we expect to do with this index is it's, it's a compilation of empirical data, And it's good for researchers to have. Uh, What happened with the work that we've done on economic freedom over the years is that we put out the data and universities, the World Bank, the IMF, scholars around the world started doing their own research. What's the relationship between economic freedom and inequality? What's the relationship between economic freedom and war? What's the relationship? And generated a huge amount of literature that almost always pointed to a huge benefit of economic freedom and that economic freedom plays a causal role in a number of really important social outcomes. Nobody has ever compiled an index of human freedom. When we used to get together and talk about economic freedom, Milton Friedman, uh, who would gather with us once a year or so to talk about this with those of us working on it, would say, what you need to do is create a human freedom index. And we would look at them and say, yeah, right, because at the time it was actually impossible to do. There just wasn't data. So we've now gathered data that has become available in the last few years and have been able to do this. And our hope is that people will become interested enough to start doing research based on this data and finding what these relationships are. And uh, that's been part of my job is to get this into the right hands of, of people and encourage them to do so and promote it in that way.
0: Thank you very much. Right. Thanks, Ian. I mean, this is uh, so central to our work because, uh, you know, people deserve to be free. They don't, shouldn't have people telling them what to do and how to live their lives. But uh, freedom also produces the best outcomes. Um, this is, the, you know, these are the things that I, the arguments I make to my uh, progressive friends and to my children's teachers. Uh, it's so important that uh, you know, we shouldn't be telling uh, you know, people in poor countries how, how to live their lives. And if we want to create prosperity and reduce poverty, this is the way to do it. It's so central to our work at, at Cato. I just have a few people I want to thank. I want to thank our uh, outstanding conference staff and, and development staff who make these events possible. So much work goes into it. And I know they have a high level of stress as well, so that so some of us don't have to have a, a high level of stress at these events. So we re- really appreciate that. I also should have thanked Rob Arnott um, before he left, because any speaker who, uh, without solicitation, mentions writing million-dollar checks to Cato is, is uh, really just an unbelievable speaker in, in, in my book. Um, and uh, as we head into the last six weeks of the year here, you know, million-dollar checks are, not, are nice, but not necessary. The, the hurdle doesn't have to be that high. So as you're, as you're uh, um, thinking about your, your end of year you know, plans for giving, we, we would love to be included in as generous a way as, as, uh, as we can. We're going to have a reception. The uh, hotel staff is going to uh, turn this room for us to have lunch. So if everyone could just put your belongings and the pens and pads and things on the ch- your chair and just tuck your chair in under the table, and then we're going to, as quickly as we can, move out here to, uh, to have a drink and uh, keep the conversation going.